The first reading today is from John 4, 7 to 18 and 25 to 29. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, and as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who has told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? The next reading is Matthew 12, 22 to 24 and 28. Then they brought him a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus said, if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Good morning, church. Good morning. <laughs> uh, last Sunday, I had the privilege of walking home with uh, my son, Calvin. And by this point, you know that God uses my kids to speak to me. And this was just like uh, every other time. But the conversation that we had started out with him asking me, Dad, why is school so hard? And thinking that it was about classes, I said, well, school's supposed to be challenging. That's why we talk about you working hard. And he, he said, no, not the classwork, the people. Why are people sometimes so mean? <laughs> and my heart went out to him uh, because he wasn't talking about school. He was talking about life. And... The fact is we always want to have a simple and easy answer to that question, uh, but it's way more complex. Why are people so mean in elementary, and why do they never stop in adulthood? But the fact is the answers aren't easy. They're not simple. They're complex. And so is the healing, and so is the healing process. But the question for us this morning is, where is God in that? 
Where is God when we experience those hurts, that pain, those wounds? How does he engage with us? How does he heal us? And for those of us who have faith, not just how does he heal us, how does he engage us, but when we have been healed, when God has moved in our lives, how do we engage a hurting world with that same measure of love and healing that God has for us? The last time I was up here, I talked about how God wants to heal our bodies, that he cares about our biology, our physical health and strength, and that he wants to do that in sometimes miraculous ways. But today what I want to share about is inner healing, the healing of the heart, the healing of the mind, the emotional side of that. And in many ways it is way more important than the physical and just as miraculous. And I know for a fact what God wants to do today. Today, God wants to communicate to you that he loves you. And not just that he loves the church in general, but that he loves you as an individual, as a child. That he sees you as his son and his daughter, and there is some special way that he wants you to know that. That he wants to get in your face so your eyes connect and he can say, I love you, and you actually feel it. But the second thing that God wants to do is that he wants to reestablish your identity. That you are a child of God. And there has been something that has caused you not to believe that, not to live confidently in that, and you are defining yourself by every other thing. But today he wants to reestablish the fact that you're his child and that that can be the confidence that you walk in with all of your life. And the third thing he wants to do is he wants to set you free. He wants to set you free from anything that is actually hindering you from those first two things. Whatever is stopping you from knowing that he loves you, whatever is stopping you from knowing that he wants to establish you as his child, he wants to take that away so that you can live in that. That's what God wants to do, but there's one thing that you have to do. There's one thing that you have to do for that to become a reality, and that's that you have to say yes to him. Yes to him. And not just yes in general, yes, God, but yes specifically to him, of saying, whatever you want to do to heal me, whatever you want to do to communicate that you love me, I am open and I say yes to receive the way you want to give. Not yes as long as it looks like this. <laughs> I'm a... Uh, big organizational uh, health junkie and a big management coaching junkie. I have a hobby of reading workplace strategy uh, books and I just consume all of that. Part of that is driven by the passion of my life and my calling and that's to right now work with our staff and our leaders so that we worked to our full capacity as a team. And that every individual that I encounter, wherever they're at in their walk, God has called me to help them reach their full potential. And I believe that there's wisdom in this world about what that looks like and how I can learn from that. And the best book on management that I've ever read comes from an unlikely source. It's the great prophetess, Tina Fey. <laughs> She's famous for SNL and 30 Rock but her book, Bossy Pants, is the best book that I've read about management. 
And one of the things that she says in there is that the best advice that she could give anyone about management is what she's adopted, not just for her business, but for her life. And it's that the rules of improv apply to everything else. And the first rules of improv are to adopt a yes and approach. Yes, an agreement, and then and in addition. That a yes and approach is what needs to be adopted as opposed to, and she con contrasts that with a no because approach. And that's one of the reasons that I chose the two passages that we read this morning, because you see the contrast. With the Samaritan woman at the well, you see a yes and approach. Jesus approaches her. He speaks to her, and she speaks back. She engages with him. She goes on to question him, but it is an openness to what he might have to say and what he might have to do and what happens to her. She experiences God's power and God's healing in a unique way to her, what she needs. Contrast that with the Pharisees who saw a man who could not speak and could not see healed and set free from a demon right before their eyes. And they say, no, that's not the way that God wants to heal people. And throughout the, the whole rest of the story, they're the ones that miss it. In church, that's what God is asking us as LMCC, which approach will we take? Which approach will you take? Will we be a church and will you be an individual that says yes and to God? Or will you say no because? And let me just say, if those of you in the no because camp, I get it. It makes sense. You've heard these stories these last few weeks from Alicia and Dan. You've heard Ryan talk in ways that you've never heard him talk before. And the natural tendency to go, these stories, this way of speaking is in our modern minds something for the ancient past, not something for present possibility. And so the temptation to say no because is easy to observe and it makes logical sense. But to take that approach is to close yourself off to anything that God may want to do. And part of that no because approach is the question, well, well, tell me what I'm saying yes and too. <laughs> like, where's this going? <laughs> what's this going to end in? If I say yes and, what's going to happen next? And I just want to tell you that's the wrong first question. It's the wrong first question. The right first question is who are you saying yes and to? And it's the person that you've already said yes to. Because so many of you have already said yes to Jesus. You've already said yes to the Savior of the world as the king of your life. Do you realize what you've said yes to? The last couple of weeks, that's what's really struck me is what I've said yes to. Because when you say yes to Jesus as Savior, let me remind you that what you're saying yes to is that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit, that he lived a perfect, sinless life, so that he could die on the cross, so that his shed blood could forgive your sins, and not only your sins, but the sins of the whole world, so that he could be buried in a tomb, and three days later resurrect to declare victory over sin, over Satan, over death, and then to appear to hundreds over the course of 40 days in his resurrected form, only to then ascend before their eyes to the throne in heaven where he promises to come back in victory on a white horse with a sweet tat when his kingdom coming with him in perfect heavenly form. 
that's what you've said yes to. And then you're going to say no to something else? See, today the offer is that for many of you. If you don't know Jesus, that's what you're offered. And what I hope happened when I shared that is that you said, yes, that's the God I recognize, that your spirit cried out within you. But it's also an offer of yes and. Yes, save me and heal every area of my life. Yes, save me and conform every area into your perfect design and your perfect plan. Yes, save me and lead me down the path that you've designed because it's better than anything I can come up with. It's yes and today. And I don't want that just to be a concept for you. I want you to hear what that is actually like in real life. And so I've asked a good friend of our church, a member of our church, to come and share her story. So will you please give the warmest of welcomes to Erica McNee. Wow, good morning. I was hoping there was a lot less of you this morning. Um, as Logan said, my name is Erica. Um, I want to share with you a little bit about my testimony. Um, I will start by giving you a little bit of uh, my upbringing. And I'm going to try to read as much as I can so I don't forget because I'm very nervous. Um, so I was born in El Salvador and lived there during the first part of my childhood. Like most people in Central America, I grew up Catholic. My family was Catholic by name only. For the most part, my parents lived a secular, liberal lifestyle, and we only attended Mass when our relative was getting married, baptized, or having their first communion. During those years, El Salvador was in the middle of a civil war. Yet despite seeing some terrible things during the war, I had a relatively happy childhood, except for one thing. The most painful part of these years wasn't the turmoil happening outside my home, but rather the turmoil happening within my life. For as long as I can remember, I always felt that I wasn't good enough and that I had very little to offer. When I was six, I remember overhearing my mother tell a relative that my dad had been very disappointed I was born a girl. He had always wanted a son. I suppose that overhearing that conversation was the beginning of me feeling unappreciated and insecure. If my own father was disappointed in me, surely I had little worth. I tried to compensate for this by always seeking approval and trying to make sure that everything, everyone around me was happy. My father served in the military as my grandfather had done, so my sister and I lived by very strict rules and we lived in fear of his punishment. My sister always pushed every boundary, broke every rule and received very harsh punishments for it. But I was clever. I learned by her mistakes, from her mistakes and always avoided getting in trouble. Eventually the Civil War became very um, severe in El Salvador that my family decided to move to Australia as refugees. I was 10 years old. The day we arrived in Melbourne at the airport, my parents, we met a pastor who was leading a Spanish-speaking church. My father didn't want anything to do with the church, but he accepted the invitation to go sightseeing as a way of getting to know the new country. 
That was, of course, followed by an invitation from the pastor to attend church, which my father reluctantly accepted as a thank you for the time spent showing us around the city. But my father got more than he bargained for. 33 years later, he's still paying for that outing. My parents ended up meeting God at that church and giving their lives to Christ. This life was changing. This was life-changing for my parents, their marriage, and our family. In time, I gave my life to Christ too and was baptized as a teen. My best memories from those years are from the church youth group. I look forward to every Friday night when we would meet. Not only did I get to hang out with my friends, but I also had wonderful personal experiences with God. When I was 14, I met a boy in the youth group and we dated for a number of years and eventually got married. I was only 20 years old. And our marriage lasted 14 years before it ended in divorce. Though I'm very grateful for my three beautiful children we had together, I always struggled feeling loved and secure in my marriage. For example, he would always say that he wanted somebody tall, blonde, and athletic. And as you can see, I'm none of those things. Um, and I often dyed my hair blonde to keep him happy. I was always having to watch what I ate out of fear that he would comment about my weight. When we were out walking together, he seldomly held my hand. I had first felt the sense of never being good enough because of the words spoken of my father, but now it were, they were being intensified by the words of my husband. In the years since my divorce, I had already started to experience some, feel, some healing from these wounds which came through better relationships. Several years after my marriage ended, I married Stephen. Stephen, right there. <laughs> um, he has taught me what real love is. From the beginning, he loved me for who I am, as I am, with all my baggage, my faults, imperfections, and shortcomings. His love for me was never conditional in any way, and this was incredibly freeing. Another wonderful thing that happened is that my relationship with my dad improved. I know without a doubt that he loves me and he would do anything for me. So things had gotten a lot better, but up until recently, I hadn't realized that there was a still a deeper level of healing that I needed to experience, which could only come from God. No human being, no matter how loving and kind, could fully break the power of these hurtful words that had been spoken over me in the past. The only thing that could truly set me free was the word spoken to me directly from the heart of my loving Heavenly Father. I discovered all this during the mission trip to Guatemala I went on the past, this past summer as a chaperone with um, the LMCC youth group. Initially, it was just for my daughter who was signed up to go, but as the trip grew near, we were told that a female chaperone was needed, so I volunteered. I had no expectations from the trip on a personal level. In my own mind, I was only going for the sake of the youth and also, I suppose, for the, gospel, for the people of Guatemala, believing that, the, that we would bless them with our service by installing stoves and water filters. But God had other plans for me. Little did I know that I personally would leave Guatemala with a lot more blessings that I was able to impart. The vision of the missionaries 
was far deeper than my own, than my own vision of just installing stoves and water filters. These things are ways to enter people's homes and bring Christ to them. They also had a strong conviction that the Lord will work miracles through us. This was slightly uncomfortable for us cynical New Yorkers. An aspect of, of this was the missionaries encouraged us to listen during times of prayer. There might be something God wanted us to, um, sorry, there might be something God wanted to tell us that we were supposed to pass on to someone else. At first, I was very skeptical of this process, but then God spoke to me clearly on two different occasions through two people I had never met before and knew nothing about my life. The first occasion came a day we were working in the village installing the stoves. Out of nowhere, one of the missionaries said to me, you feel useless, worthless, and without a purpose. God wants me to tell you that you have worth. You are not useless, and you have purpose. He has called you to be a missionary. This is what you are called to do. On one level, you could, be, you could be a skeptical and wonder whether this was just an observation he was making. He might have just been talking about the immediate situation we were in that day. Anyone could have guessed that we all probably felt a little hopeless over the situation these people live in and useless since installing the, insto installing the stoves involved a lot of standing around. So maybe he was just saying, you're wondering why you're here in this village today but God wants you to be here. Even though you feel useless, God's, God wants you to come on this trip as a missionary to Guatemala. And maybe in his own mind, that is all he meant by it. But that is not what his words meant to me. What this man couldn't have possibly known is that over the past few years in New York, useless, Worthless and without a purpose is exactly how I had been feeling every day. I had looked for many jobs, even though we didn't need the money, thinking that a job was what I needed to find meaning and purpose and start feeling valuable. When this man spoke to me, I knew that God wasn't talking about me being a missionary for a week in Guatemala, but rather about being his messenger every day back home in New York and to tell others about him and loving others in his name. I knew exactly that this is why I hadn't found the right job yet, because this was my true calling. And when God puts a yearning within you, there is nothing else that can fill it besides what he has planned for you. Looking back, there is no question in my mind that God really did give this man a word for me. Out of all the people standing around, why did he single me out? He could have never known what I had been experiencing over the past few years. And then there was the way his words immediately pierced my heart as I understood their deeper meaning. I can't explain this unless it really was from God. After receiving the first word, I certainly wasn't expecting anything else. But the next day, the second word came. Each morning we met for prayer and worship at our home base before heading out to do the work for the day. After the meeting on this particular day, another missionary whom I had never seen before approached me and asked to speak with me. She explained that a few moments before, while we were worshipping, the Lord had given her a word for me. 
She told me that she could see a wall between me and God, a wall of guilt and shame. For a long time, he had been trying to break it down. He would, he would remove a brick from that wall, but then I always managed to put it right back. She said that God wanted me to know that he had already dealt with my shame and my guilt, but that I needed to believe it in my heart, that when he saw me, he saw a precious child, not a sinner. Receiving the second word was even more profound for me than, the, than receiving the first one. I had known for a long time that my guilt and shame still had a very strong hold in my life. I knew, that, I knew his forgiveness in my mind, but not in my heart. And as I prayed that morning with a woman I had never met, I could feel the shame and guilt leave me. It almost felt like a physical weight being lifted off of me. I had such an overwhelming feeling of forgiveness and love, along with a freedom I have never experienced before. I love the words from the song, Holy Spirit, which say, I have tasted and seen the sweetness of love when my heart becomes free and my shame is undone. That is exactly what I felt that morning. What you might wonder, and what I wondered myself at first, was whether receiving these words could have a lasting impact in my life. Part of me was afraid that these would just be emotional experiences without any true depth, things that live behind in Guatemala that would eventually turn into nothing but memories. But four months later, I can now say that that hasn't been the case. The experience has changed me in tangible, persistent and obvious ways. For example, four months later, I still, free, I still feel free from the burden of guilt in a way I never did before. Or to take another example, prior to these experiences, my husband Stephen and I could not pray together. Now we can. It is not forced, but it's very natural and organic, something I could have never imagined before. Not only are we closer to each other, but we feel so much closer to the Lord. Every Sunday without fail, God brings us to tears during the worship. I can feel God stirring in a way within this church, just as I felt him stirring a new way within my heart while in Guatemala. When I think about his timing, I am in awe of his kindness, that he would give me these new experiences this summer, just at the same time as my church back home was also in the cusp of becoming more open to his voice. I'd like to close by saying that the Lord is moving in this church. Don't miss out. I'd like to invite you to have an open heart and put your natural cynicism aside. Give the Lord room to move in your life because if you do, he will speak to you and heal you and you'll never be the same. Thank you. Thank you, Erica. It was amazing. Um, I wanted you to hear that for obvious reasons. It's beautiful. It's powerful. But if I attach it to John chapter 4, I want you to see that the same spirit that spoke to Jesus about the reality of the woman at the well's life 
It was the spirit. It wasn't just Jesus tapping into like the divine side of his brain. It was the Holy Spirit revealing to him the facts of that woman's life. It's the same spirit that spoke through those two people to Erica. And it's the same spirit that lives in us. And he still wants to do it. So I wanted you to hear that for that reason, but also because it personally connected to my story. And um, and what I want to share about that is so that you see God loves you, he wants to heal you, and he will do it uniquely in the way that you need to, to have it. And he will go to great lengths and do whatever it takes so that you have it in your life the way that you need it. So you hear from God. He loves you. He knows you. He will heal you. So here we go. Last time I did share about the gift of healing in my life and how through my own reluctance and my apprehensions, God prevailed. And I saw people healed through my prayers. And I told you that I had put it on the shelf. I told you that I hadn't tapped into it for many years. But I didn't tell you why. And the reason for that is that those years involved my own need of healing and my own pain that caused me to steer away from that. Because about a year after that, um, something happened very similar to what Erica experienced. And what you're going to hear through that is very similar stories with Erica, but a little bit different. They even attached to what Ryan talked about last week with the dark side and why these words carry so much power if we allow them to. In 2013, uh, my parents came to visit, and I'm going to share the details because I've been healed and I've forgiven, and they have no more pain and power. But my dad came to visit, and um, we were in a park with another family that, that we knew. They were Christians, and my dad, myself, and this the other dad were just talking to three of us, and the other dad said, man, isn't it great that your son is a pastor in New York City? How amazing. And my dad said, no, it's not amazing. We didn't pay for his college so that he would become a pastor in New York City. <laughs> All I could do was laugh because how absurd and awkward for him to be able to say that. And I told the story over a course of years laughing, but inside it was a lot of pain. And shortly after that, our church went through a transition, and the founder of our church was leaving, and I was stepping into his position in an interim way, and I was going to be preaching and speaking in his place. And on his exit, he told me, "Um, you need to know your preaching will not maintain this church. Quite the ringing endorsement. And it's those two scenes that served as these echoes in my mind every single week as I prepared a message and every single Sunday as I stepped onto stage. And they led me down this path of depression. And after three months, I was experiencing a deep level of depression. And my first response was to go to counseling for the first time. And counseling allowed me to diagnose the issue as depression. It allowed me to have some tools and some spiritual practices to fight this depression. And that's what it was like for two and a half years. For two and a half years, I did everything I could to fight through counseling, to fight with spiritual practices and with community, and there were days where it was all I could do to cry out to God, give me the energy for today. Let me today be able to be a good husband and a good father and a good pastor. And that's what it was. But about two years later, something happened to a few people in our church, and God began to move in a new way. 
One of our leaders, he was on our leadership team, and a few others went to this conference out of New Jersey. And when they came back, he was like a different person. There was more joy, there was more peace, there was a lightness to him. And I asked him why, what happened at this conference? And what he shared confronted my theology and definitely confronted my comfortability in terms of what God can and wants to do. Because I sat down with him, I said, tell me what happened, I need to know. And he said, well, during that time, there was a time of prayer and ministry, and someone had a special word for me. And when they spoke to me, it led to a time of prayer and ministry where a demon that I had been plagued with my entire life was cast out of me. (laughs) I'm sorry, could you say that again? Um, Because that's not the theology that I was taught. Christians can't experience this. And it led me to go back and study the scriptures. And in the passage that was read this morning, in Matthew 12, it talks about a demon-oppressed man. Most of our English translations say demon-possessed, and that's because in the King James Version, that was the best phrase they thought to communicate this truth. But it's a terrible translation. It's a complete lie. Because demon-possessed communicates ownership and control, and demons can't do that. Satan has no power over a child of God. But... The actual translation is demonized, meaning that you can be tempted, influenced, attacked, oppressed to a point where there is influence over the activity of your lives caused by demons. So after studying that, this same person said, hey, the conference is happening again next week in New York City. (laughs) Do you want to come? I knew he was bringing a handful of people from my church, and I went as a cautiously optimistic observer. (laughs) Because I wanted to see, who is this person? And what is he saying? And is it true? And over the course of three days of just straight teaching, no worship, no emotion, the least sensational experience ever, he was a Princeton grad, and he was as boring as most Princeton grads are. (laughs) Just trying to lighten it up a little. And on the third night, we were at the NYU Student Center, And there was a Christmas party below us to the point where we had to move to a different room. (laughs) I'm like, this is so weird. But at the end, they opened it up to words of knowledge, and they said, we're going to receive it from people that are in the audience. And don't worry about being wrong. If you hear a word or a phrase, just raise your hand and share it. It may be for someone. It may not be. Don't worry. And it went on for a little while, and he said, okay, maybe one or two more. And a woman raised her hand. And she said, all I have is a date. Could it be a date? And he's like, yeah. And she said, it's November 29th. And he said, well, does that mean anything to anybody? And I was like, yeah, that's my dad's birthday. And my immediate thought was, this is for my dad. He has Parkinson's. Maybe God wants to do something powerful in his life. And she said, well, there was a phrase attached to the date of, I love you. And when she said that, it was like something cracked in me. Erica said, pierced her heart. That's what it felt like, like something broke. And I immediately fell just forward in my chair and I started crying this guy named Kevin who's on their ministry team came up and he came and started praying over me and he said God the father wants to communicate his love for you and he started saying things to me he said you made the right choice you have not chosen the wrong path all the words of rejection spoken over you are lies this guy did not know me we had never spoken 
And then he prayed over me, and he, then he stopped and said, I get the sense that your dad spoke something over you of rejection. And I told him the story from two and a half years ago. And he said, I get the sense that other men have done the same. And I told him the rest. And then he led me in this prayer of forgiveness. He said, I want you to imagine all the words that have ever been said to you and put them in a ball in your hands and walk to the cross where Jesus is there and his sides are pierced and put them in his sides where the blood and the water can wash over them and cleanse them. And we went through that. And then he said, now I want, to sit, I want you to sit and pray and I want you to ask God a series of questions. And I only got through one of them. And it was this. God, how do you see me? God, how do you see me? And in prayer, I was brought back to a memory that had haunted me that previous years in dreams and nightmares and different seasons when I was six. And I had gotten in trouble and sent to the principals for flooding the toilets in my elementary school. <laughs> so it wasn't just Calvin that had trouble in school. And I got sent home, and in the memory, I'm sitting on the floor in our dining room, and my head is down, and my mom is standing over me yelling her disappointment, her embarrassment. How could I ever have done something like that? And what he said is, in these memories, look for the Father's face. And all the time in the memory, my head has always been down. And this time, I began to look up. And instead of seeing my mom, I saw the Father's face and heard him say, this is not how I see you. And in that moment, that scene was sanitized. It was cleansed of all the power that had held in my life of guilt and shame. And then my legs started to bounce. <laughs> and it felt like I was running. And I was running mentally through these different scenes in my life of shame and of guilt. And all I heard was, this is not how I see you. You are my son in whom I'm well pleased. All through those scenes, through the two and a half years, through all of that. And then these two women started to pray over me. And one was praying in tongues. It was the first time that's ever happened. <laughs> and then one, the other one prayed, and she prayed 2 Timothy 1.7. For God did not give you a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and a sound mind, which was a verse that had meaning to me ever since I was saved. And then my hands started to shake. My legs are bouncing, my hands shaking, and I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> and I clenched my fist. And I sense from God saying, you're trying to fight me. You're trying to control this. Let go. So I let go. And then she says, look at me. And I open my eyes, and I look at her. And I can't speak, but I know what's about to happen. And she says to me, spirit of rejection, come out. And my body reacts. And I cough, a tiny cry, and something leaves me. And she says, spirit of fear, come out. And she's yelling. And the person next to her is like, yo, calm down. And, and all I want to say is, get away, she's at work. Spirit of fear come out, and I feel this physical tension rise up within me, and I cough, and I crowd again, and my body just goes limp in relief. And all I feel, feel is joy and peace and relief. And everyone's like, are you okay, okay? I'm like, yes, I could not be better. It was amazing. And there's two things I want you to walk away from with that story, and this is how I'm going to close today. The first thing is that God's victory is more important than your dignity. God's victory is more important than your dignity. Because after that was over, I mean, these are people that I lead with, and I'm their leader. I'm like, oh, gosh, they watched this. And I asked one of the guys, I was like, what was that, like five minutes? He was like, that was 45 minutes of your legs bouncing. I was like, what? 
what? So for 45 minutes, I lost my dignity. And maybe for the last 15 minutes, that was true again. But it was so much better to lose my dignity so that I could gain God's victory. And for some of you today, you need to lay aside your dignity. It, it may not be a demon. It's, I think that's rare. But it may be the shame of the past. It may be sin that you've not confessed. It may be something that you're like, if they only knew that, would they still love me and accept me in this community? Your dignity is preventing you from God's victory. So today, as we move for prayer, lay aside your dignity for just a minute to go back and to confess and to share and then receive prayer of you that you might receive God's victory. His victory is more important than your dignity. The second thing is that, that God's victory is the theme of that story and Erica's story. Don't walk away from here thinking that you need to encourage Erica and you'd encourage me in the sense of those things spoken over you aren't true. We know that now. God said that. Don't walk away consumed with the idea of like what's going on with demons and angels and sin and all this stuff. Like what's going on here? No, that's not what you walk away with. You walk away with the fact that Jesus rose from the dead to defeat Satan, sin, and death, and his victory is the theme of our church. He's the theme of our story. It's the theme of my life, and that's what he's saying, and that's what he's offering to be the theme of yours. That's what you're saying yes and to, his victory, his healing, his power. That's what you walk away with. And the question is, will you? God says, do you want my victory? Will you answer yes and? Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for my own story. I want to thank you for Erica's story. I want to thank you for the many stories that, pe that people aren't sharing because they are just your individual way of speaking uniquely to each of us, that you love us, that you have pursued us, and that you're not done, that you want to heal, that you want to reestablish our identity, and you want us to trust you again. And so God, it's your victory that we call upon this morning, the victory of Jesus. We thank you for that victory. Allow each and every one of us in here to trust it, to believe it. And God, let people walk away changed today by your power. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.